your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21 this morning. We'll pick up where we left off uh, last Sunday when we were together. In verses 1 through 11, Paul was describing the spiritual mind. And in verses 8 through 11, this is what Paul said. He said, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may maintain the resurrection from the dead. So again, he was describing the spiritual mind. He told us to put on the mind of Christ. He told us to have submissive minds. Now let's continue on with the first part of verse 12. He goes on to say, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Think about what Paul has done prior to what he has said here. Within a few weeks of Paul's conversion, he had made such a powerful impact on Damascus. And he had stirred up such opposition that he was forced to leave town. And while waiting for God to call him to his life work, Paul evangelized Arabia, Tarsus, and Cilicia. Then Barnabas urged Paul to go to Syria and Antioch, where Paul made a great impact there on that wicked city. Paul evangelized the island of Cyprus and he founded a string of churches <clears throat> in Galatia, at Antioch and Pisidia, at Iconium, at Lystra, Derby, and later on in North Galatia. He defended Christian freedom and he helped the elders of, Jer of the Jerusalem church understand that Gentiles did not have to uh, become Jews to become Christians. A huge achievement that set the church free from the bondage of Judaism. Paul stated, or I'm sorry, Paul started the work in Europe where he planted thriving churches in Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and Corinth. He made an unforgettable speech on Mars Hill before the intellectuals of the world. He evangelized Ephesus and he left behind a church that also reached out and planted other churches in Western Asia Minor. After years of traveling and preaching, teaching and exhorting, Paul arrived at Rome, but he arrived as a prisoner. But even there, while he lived in constant danger of death, Paul was saving souls in the royal guard and spreading the work of Christ into Caesar's palace. Paul had influenced many young men to follow his example, and he gave them examples of, of, of uh, uh, of evangelizing, uh, pastoring, and, uh, and teaching. Uh, he said that he gave Timothy, uh, Titus, Luke, Silas, Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Those are just a few of the examples of young men that Paul left behind as examples of Christians who, again, were committed to Christ and were spreading the good news. Paul himself had performed miracles. He had healed the lame, he had cast out demons, he healed fevers, he healed the sick, he raised the dead. He, he himself had suffered great hardships, but with joy in his heart, 
Can you imagine? He suffered great hardships, but with joy in his heart. He'd been beaten, he'd been scourged, he'd been shipwrecked, he'd been imprisoned, he'd been stoned, attacked by mobs, criticized, and mocked. And yet Paul wrote these words, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Prophet Paul did more in his short, uh, after his short conversion than a lot of Christians do in their lifetime. Now if Paul could say that, where in the world do we stand this morning? He didn't feel like he had arrived after all that he'd done. And he didn't dare rest on what he had done thinking, man, you know, I've done an awful lot since I've been a Christian. And he, taught, he, he didn't stop there. Paul was evaluating his situation realistically in, what, in light of what he has not done yet. The work of world evangelism had barely started compared to what he had done there, you know, was still so much more for him to do. Look at the second part of verse 12. Notice he says, But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul was speaking here as an athlete. Paul was saying, hey, I'm running a race. And I've just started. I just, I just got off the starting blocks. It's not over. I'm pressing on. And he says, I'm pressing on with a view to seizing that for which I have been seized. In other words, I am going to do what God has called me to do. The words press on or follow after is the same word uh, persecuting that he used earlier in verse 6. It's the same kind of zeal and commitment that once drove Paul to stamp out Christianity. That same zeal and that that same commitment now is is driving him to plant churches everywhere and and, and take the word of God everywhere. Paul had one all-consuming desire. And he said, to get hold of that for which Christ had gotten hold of him. He says, I want to do and get done for, what, for why Christ has, has called me. Look at verse 13, first part. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Keep in mind, Paul wrote this at the end of his life. Paul had written letter after letter giving us encouraging thoughts about spiritual truth. He gave the highest views of Christ and what it takes for for Christian living and church growth. And those letters were the the meat and potatoes of the faith. They are the the heart of the faith. And yet Paul's saying, I don't think I've grasped all there is to grasp yet. I still haven't gotten there yet. Second part of verse 13. He says, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Paul was saying, hey, what I've done in the past, that's the past. The past was the past. He said, thank God for the past, but it's over. Paul had affected two continents for Jesus. But what about Africa? What about the continents that haven't been discovered yet? Paul had reached Rome, and now he wanted to go to Spain. And then beyond Spain were unevangelized places of the empire. There was still a lot of land to be possessed, a lot of land to be reached for Christ. So Paul's saying, the job wasn't over. I'm not done yet. I'm just getting started. He was just warming up with all that he'd 
passages done previously. Paul decided there was only one thing to do. Start again as though nothing had been done. His new plan was to put the past behind him. And he was now going to set his sights on new targets ahead. What can I do now? Where can I go now to continue God's work? To continue to preach the gospel? Where can I go? What can I do now? So again, he wanted to start again. That was his, that was his, his mindset. One thing I do. So again, his new plan was to put the past behind him, to set his sights on new targets, and you know, when you're running a race, you don't look around. If you've ever been in track, one thing your coach says, do not look back. Do not look around. Why? Because you could go sideways. You could stumble. You could fall. Keep your eyes on the finish line. Paul is running this race, and he says, fix your eyes on the prize, the finish line, and Who's at the finish line? Jesus. In stating his new goals, Paul said, but one thing I do. We need to underline that. Emphasize that in your Bible. One thing I do. And that is, he says, I focus all my energy on the one goal that I have set for myself and nothing is going to distract me. The psalmist said in Psalm 27, 4, one thing, notice, one thing I have desired of the Lord and that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. We need to be one thing people instead of many things. One thing people. And it's remembering it's not about how far I've gone, but how far, how far I still have to go. Verse 14. Paul says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice the prize. He's running for the prize, but you know what? It's not some leafy crown. It's not some trophy. And the prize, it speaks, it speaks of those who endure. Only those who finish get the prize. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he says, he who endures or he, she who endures to the end will be saved. Now, enduring isn't, isn't what saves us. You know, we don't work to get saved. Enduring is, uh, it shows that we are saved. Enduring doesn't, again, save us. It's evidence of a person truly committed to Jesus. It's someone that says, I'm committed to finishing this work. I'm uh, committed to finish what Jesus has called me to do, and I'm not going to stop until I finish. All through the passage, we see Paul as a man running a race. And if you've ever seen those, those, those track stars that are running a race, And they're heading towards the finish line. Their heads are thrust forward. Their bodies are straining to reach the goal. They're gasping for every breath. And their whole being is is, is being stretched to the limit. To be first over the line. Every last bit of energy and power is being spent to win the prize. Again, what's the prize? Again, not some leafy crown. It's not some trophy. Not some medal that goes on their jersey. It's the upward call of God. Paul said, that's what I'm running for. I'm pressing towards the the goal. I'm pressing for the upward call of God or the high calling of God or the calling on high. Those are the original words that have been translated in different ways. Paul wanted the prize. Now think of it. Have you ever run a race 
wanting to lose? No. What, what, what drove Paul to run this race and to finish this race was Jesus Christ. That's what kept his unswerving and unrelenting race toward the goal. Jesus was the bottom line of his uncompromising dedication. Always behind his visions of where to go, the land still to be conquered for the gospel and the lost to be saved, that was the vision that Paul had from the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 15 and 16. So Paul says, let, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God would reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Paul now comes to how this applies to us this morning. He didn't write this to brag about his dedication. He wasn't writing this to brag about what he has done or to brag about himself. He wrote this to motivate us. To make our motivation greater. He didn't want us to cheer for him. Uh, he, he wanted us to pass him. He was encouraging us to go further go and to pass him. You know, today in the church, there are too many spectators in the pews. Not enough participators. We sit in the pew. We cheer for other Christians. Or, on the other hand, we put down the people who are running the race. We say, oh, that man, that man, that was a good message. And that's the end of it. <laughs> or we say, hey, that was really interesting. I've never heard that before. The end of the message. We think about sermons of being, as being useful. Oh, and helpful information. Boy, I, I, that's good to know. Or to use it in our own preaching to others. But the thought of a sermon uh, that, that it might have personal application to me, personal everyday application, it hardly ever crosses our mind. Oh, I wish, I wish so-and-so would have heard that message. I wish my mom or my dad or my husband or my wife would have heard that message. Oh, they, they really needed to hear that. But have we ever, it crossed our mind that, you know, uh, that was for me? Sometimes as spectators, we hear, boy, I never thought a preacher would ever act like that. Forgetting that the best of us, and that's all of us, are but flesh. If you lived on the battlefield, and you were in the battle, and every you, move you made was being studied, people would find something to gossip about us. John Chrysostom, a martyr of God, he said, you are but a poor soldier of Christ if you think you can overcome without fighting and suppose you can have the crown without the conflict. Jesus said, we are soldiers of Christ. And you know what? We're going to get wounded if we get into the battle. It, it goes hand in hand. Part of the battle is being wounded. Paul challenged the Philippians to come down from, the, from out of their front row seats and get into the fight. Some of them were already doing good, and he described them here as, as perfect, which means mature or started the race. Paul encouraged these faithful brothers to be of the same mind of himself as himself, you know, to have the same mind of Paul. He said, forget about what's already been done. That's past. 
He's saying set some new goals and run to achieve those new goals and to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in order to achieve those goals. But not all of the Philippians were mature. Verse 15 said some thought otherwise. Many of Paul's colleagues didn't look at him in the same brave way we do. You know, many of his colleagues looked at Paul as, a, as an extremist, a fanatic, a Jesus freak, as they would call us today, maybe. They didn't like what Paul stood for because they were afraid of his intelligence. They questioned his theology. They were intimidated by his zeal, and they resented his success. And among those who admired Paul and thanked God for him were those who were busy with their own lives and didn't think about getting great things, uh, about the great things that occupied his mind. They didn't see the, 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 the lost world like Paul did. They didn't grasp the, uh, sanctification truth like Paul did, being renewed day by day. He didn't see Jesus like they, like, they didn't see Jesus like he saw Jesus. So whether they were mature or they thought otherwise, Paul wanted them all to walk by the same rule. He wanted, them, he, he wanted them to have the same mind that he did. Minding the same thing, being one thing people. No matter how far we've already come, let us all run on the same road. Paul said, Jesus, it's, it's straight and it's narrow. And not many find it. We need to find it. We need to get on it and stay on it to the end. Verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So Paul was saying, hey, let me be your model. Let me be your model and others. Others who are per pursuing the same goal. Others who are being like me and following my example. Now, Paul wasn't bragging about himself. He wasn't being egotistic. It wasn't about, hey, look at me, how spiritual I am. Remember, the Holy Spirit was guiding what Paul was writing. And the Holy Spirit had no better example to use than Paul. But on a purely human level, Paul was the best missionary, the best soul winner, the best pastor, the best Bible teacher, the best model of faith, and best in exercising his faith. True humility is, is not pretending that we don't have gifts that we do have, and everybody else knows too. True humility is not putting down our achievements as if they were inferior when they're obviously of a higher calling. To pretend we can't do something that we can do or to pretend we, we haven't done something that we have done, that's not humility, it's, it's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Humility is admitting what God has done in our lives and giving Him the credit. Giving Him the glory and the praise for it. Jesus said this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, we are, others are to see our good works. And if they say, wow, that is... You, say, Wait, you know what? Yeah. Give glory to God. What I have done is only because of Christ in me. He's the one who's enabled me to do what I have done. Because I could never have done this on my I wouldn't even have thought of doing this. And then there were other faithful brothers beside Paul. From the past and the present that we use as, as examples of the Christian life. 
We can thank God for every man, every woman, and every child who inspires us to be more like Jesus and to be more sincere and more committed to him. Verse 18. Paul says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. When Paul got to Philippi, and he was a veteran, he'd been a, he was a veteran of spiritual foreign wars. Paul had already planted many churches in Galatia. And Paul had seen how fast Satan could counterattack. He'd seen what happened in Antioch. He'd been to Jerusalem to challenge those uh, uh, in the church who wanted to Judaize the Gentile Christians. And it didn't take long for Paul to realize that wherever he went, he would have to warn his new converts about false brethren, false teachers, liars. So when he came to Philippi, he warned them. And he was pretty sure that a lot of false brethren would follow him around or follow him there as well. Because everywhere else they, that he went, they tracked him down. They found him. And they confused the issues. They taught things that weren't true to the church. And they upset the saints and they caused divisions. And that's Satan's goal. Upset the church. Cause divisions. Say things that aren't true. And, Paul, and because of those people that, that, that got caught up in the false teachers, Paul cried for those. Those false teachers. He cried for those who were enemies of the cross. He cried for those who were enemies of the gospel. It shows a, it shows a Christ-like heart that Paul had. Paul cried for the enemies of the cross just as much as he cried for the damage that they did to those who were influenced by these enemies of the cross. But the cross offers a cure for those who are enemies of Jesus. But those who are enemies of the cross oppose the means of salvation that Jesus gained for us at an infinite cost. His blood shed upon the cross. People who make themselves enemies of the cross put themselves out of the reach of, of redemption because there is no redemption outside of the cross. There's no other way you can be saved. There's no other mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The cross is the way. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Peter, I'm sorry, picture. Picture the scene in the prison, in his cell in Rome, as Paul writes verse 18 here. Just picture him in his cell writing verse 18 and what he says. He's crying for his enemies. The jailer saw him crying. The jailer is chained to this peculiar man named Paul. This peculiar man with a patient personality, with a brilliant analytical mind, gentle in heart, strong-willed. The jailer sees tears well up in Paul's eyes, running down his cheeks. The jailer says, cheer up, Paul. Things aren't that bad. You're a Roman citizen, and one of these days they're going to let you go because they don't crucify uh, um, Romans, at least not in Rome. Paul wipes away his tears, he smiles, he looks at the jailer, he says, no, you got me all wrong, I'm not crying for myself. He says, oh, well, you know, you must be crying for your friends, your wife and kids, and, and he says, don't worry, Paul, you'll be, you'll be free soon so you can see your family. Cheer up, Paul, everything's going to be okay. And Paul says, I'm not crying for my family and friends, I'm crying for my enemies. 
Jada said, well, don't worry, Paul. They're going to get what's coming to them. Just wait and see. We know you're, you're innocent. No, your friend, my friend, you're wrong. I'm not crying out of resentment. I'm not crying because of them. I'm crying for them. When was the last time you cried for your enemy? <laughs> Any of us cried for our enemies. Verse 19a, first part of verse 19. And now he's talking about those who have made themselves enemies of the cross. He says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind, notice, on earthly things. No wonder Paul cried for the false brethren. He knew they were lost. He knew they were on their way to hell. He wasn't happy about that. Even though they had done a lot of hurt to him, a lot of harm to him and to his churches. He's thinking the thought of these men spending eternity in hell, it broke his heart. Second part of verse 19. It says, who set their mind on earthly things. These false brethren were ruled by worldly things, by the sensual and worldly things. They made themselves, they made themselves religious teachers. And Paul showed that their religion and their righteousness and their respectability was nothing more than a phony self-doing. They did it, they made themselves religious, righteous, and respectable in their, in their own minds. And they were ruled by materialism. False brethren always see themselves differently. They saw themselves as passionate protectors of truth. They saw themselves as spreaders of the true gospel. And you'll hear the, the, a lot of the cults will say, hey, you know what, you need to come to our church because we'll teach you the true gospel. We have insight that your church doesn't have. We have men that you know, are, are special in God's eyes. So they're, they're, they're again, they're men who are willing to, these are men are willing, who are willing to leave the comforts of home and family to travel far distances to enlighten Paul's poor, deceived converts as they saw them. And there are still many false brethren today. Verse 20, part A. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we, are, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. The word citizenship here refers to the country where we are citizens and where we have certain rights and responsibilities. And the believer's citizenship or community is heaven. That is your citizenship. Citizen, citizenship was highly valued in an empire made up that was made up mostly of slaves and, 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 and free men. Paul enjoyed the rare privilege of being a Roman citizen, and yet he was proud, more proud of being a citizen of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven as well. And this citizenship Heaven is open to all who will make Jesus Christ the King of glory, their Savior, and their Lord. We Christians belong to the upper class of heaven, where our Lord reigns at the right hand of God the Father. And we have a responsibility in, the, in this present world to never, never disgrace our homeland. Heaven. In our country, heaven. The streets are paved with gold, the Bible says. The walls are built of jasper. The gates are made of pearl. And a rainbow is around the throne. A crystal stream and foundations shine with gems. And many mansions are there. And the tree of life is there. 
sickness, death, pain, sorrow. It doesn't threaten our country streets. There's no hospitals there. There's no prisons or retirement homes are going to be found there. No tears or sighs are even heard there. Just songs of praise, songs expressing unspeakable joy. We citizens are served by angels ordered by the one who sits on the throne to minister <clears throat> to those who have inherited salvation through the birth in Christ, our new birth in Christ. Right now we're pilgrims here. We're strangers in a foreign land. This isn't our home. And a lot of Christians have made this their playground. It's the enemy's, it's the enemy's territory. This world is not our final home. We're, we're here as heaven's ambassadors. Every night we pitch our tent here, we're a day closer to going home. Traveling through. And we're never to forget for a single second where our, our citizenship is. The thought of that beautiful land and its glorious king will influence the way we dress, the way we speak, the way we live, and our attitude. And it will help to determine what we say, where we go, how we behave, what pleasures we allow, how we use our talent, what we do with our money, how we treat other people, and the amount of time we spend in worship, service, Bible study, and prayer. Second part of verse 20. <clears throat> Who will transform, I'm sorry, it says, which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The great hope for believers is the coming of the Lord Jesus. The coming of the Lord Jesus is what's in view here in verse 20. Whether it's the rapture or whether it's whether when, it, when Jesus comes back to the world at the end of the tribulation, great tribulation period. For the unbeliever, whether it's the rapture or end of the great tribulation, it will be a horrible time for them. It will be a time of horror for them. But for the believer, the rapture will be a wonderful event, a wonderful hope for believers. Verse 21. Again, speaking of Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his, to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able <clears throat> even to subdue all things to himself. When Jesus comes back, he's going to take our dying bodies and he's going to change them into glorious bodies like his own. And he's going to use the same mighty power that he will use to conquer everything else. Notice Paul says in verse 21, we have lowly bodies. Lowly bodies. Meaning they're weak, they're limited in what they can do. You know, and, then, and they're a slave to the lust of the flesh and to the sin that the body craves every day. But one day... This body's going to die, and it's going back to the dust where it was made from. But this lowly body is going to be changed one day. It's going to be transfigured, and our bodies are going to be made just like his. Come, uh, again, conformed to his glorified body in the twinkling of an eye. John Phillips, in his commentary on this verse 21, he says, the fact that we live again is no more incredible than the fact that we live at all i want to read something to you that he wrote about this body and and the and the, the glorious body that, that god has made and 
and how sometimes we think, how, you know, it's going to go back to dust. How is God going to put it all back together? Well, when you think about God being God and being creator and how he created his body, it's not a problem for him. Listen to what John Phillips wrote. He said, think of the, complex, the complexity of a single human body or even a single cell. One molecule of hemoglobin, which is the protein in blood that carries oxygen to every part of the body, contains 3,032 atoms of carbon, 4,812 atoms of hydrogen, 780 atoms of nitrogen, 4 atoms of iron, 880 atoms of oxygen, 12 atoms of sulfur. All 9,520 atoms have to be hooked to each other in a certain order and in exactly the right way just to make one molecule essential to physical life. The more science unravels the mystery of the human body, the more awesomely complex it seemed to be. For example, every living thing <clears throat> is made up of microscopic cells so small that the letter O on this page, you know, like you type the letter O on your computer, he says, on this, this letter O could con, can contain up to 40,000 microscopic cells. Yet each individual cell is a world in itself with a specialized function and intricate timetable that tells the cell when to grow, when to divide, when to make hormones, and when to die. In a human body, some 3 billion cells die and are replaced every minute. The human brain contains some 30 billion cells. The skin has about a million cells per square inch, and in the veins, some 20 trillion cells go about their business. All cells reproduce by dividing, and, a, and when a cell divides, each new cell receives a complete copy of the blueprint, the code of life. The code determines whether the cell will be that of a cockroach, a horse, a worm, or a man. The code also determines the differences between brothers in the same family. The nucleus of each cell is dominated by chromosomes, which carry in their chemistry every characteristic of the living creature being formed. Each chromosome is made up of genes. Each gene is a distinct strand of DNA and contains the code for making one particular kind of protein, the basic building block of life. The code itself uses 20 amino acids in a protein chain. These amino acids can be arranged in different ways to make the assortment of proteins need to build a human body. The diameter of the nucleus of the cell is less than four, four ten thousandths of an inch, and components of any given cell are enclosed in a membrane only one half of a millionth of an inch thick. He said that we should live at all is a miracle. That we should live again is no greater miracle. Can you imagine? Sheesh. To think somebody can leave some little critter crawl against the rock and scratch his belly and that created the first leg or of something coming out of some primordial ooze and, and, and life just began when you hear the complexity of the body I can't even begin to explain it's just beyond our imagination and the Bible says, is anything too hard for God? No. The God who made us once can easily make us again, as Paul said, according to the working whereby he is able to even to subdue all things to himself. Unbelief looks at the corpse. Faith looks at the creator. Unbelief sees a dead body in a coffin. Faith sees a risen, victorious, omnipotent Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the unconditional guarantee of what we believe. Father, thank you so much for your awesome word, God. Thank you, Father, for, Lord, all that you do for us, God. Thank you with such a small word in light of who you are and what you've done, what you can do and what you're going to do, Father. But Lord, let us be, as Paul said, racing towards the finish line, Lord, pressing towards the mark of the upward call that one day, Father, we'll be with our Lord and our Savior. We'll be sitting at the right hand with him. So, Lord, may you reach deep into our hearts, God, and may this message speak to us, God. Maybe for those who aren't believers, God, may they understand that you are creator. The Father, only you can save. Only you can change a heart, God. But we have to want it. We have to want Jesus to come into our life, forgive us of our sins, and begin walking and living in a relationship with you, Father. Father, we thank you for the offering we'll receive today. As always, we thank you for your goodness, for your generosity, your faithfulness, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you know, it being the